Matt Laswitz, and welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week, my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. Brother Will, what is going on tonight? Oh, Matt, 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 question for you. So I just got a new laptop. And every time I get a new laptop, I'm like, oh, let me put some Steam games on it because I'm going to like game on this or something. I will inevitably stop in like two weeks. But, 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 but for right now, I got a game that has captured my entire attention. It's the only thing I can think about. It's the only thing on my mind right now. It's called Stellaris. It's basically like Civ in space. With a little touch of Star Trek Armada, which is a game I loved from years and years and years ago. Uh, so, like, you know, you, you can pick your your space empire uh, and then explore this, you know, auto generated galaxy and, you know, develop ships and form your government. And you, you could be some pansy democracy or you could be a, a war of you know conquest and all this stuff. Anyway, what's the last game? that you just absolutely obsessed about. You're like, I can't play this enough. That is rough because video games are somewhat poison for me because when I start, I can't stop. So (laughs) I don't play video games very often. And Amber is more of the gamer than I am. Like our system tends to be Amber playing RPGs, playing Dragon Age or one of the uh, Elder Scrolls games for the umpteenth time with a different character. Never beat Arkham Knight. I don't think I can qualify that because I just got to a point in Arkham Knight and I just could not get past this certain point. Oh, I remember I couldn't get past uh, the big Joker fight in um, Arkham Asylum. Like I was like, okay, that's it. Which I realize is the end of the game, but still I'm like, no, nah, this is too much. I-, I was able to beat Asylum and City and Origins but in night, you start driving the Batmobile, and I am shite at driving games and always have been. So at the end, or towards the end, at least, where I finally got to, and I'm a decent way along, you're in these sewer tunnels or below Gotham, and you're driving around, and the Red Hood is driving this burrower tank after you. Not Red Hood, the Arkham Knight, but he's the Red Hood. Hashtag spoilers. Yeah, I didn't even, that was completely unconscious, but it's true. But I'm driving and I could not get past it. I would just constantly, okay, I'm going to make it. And then he would just run into me or I would try to make a hairpin turn and I wouldn't make the turn and I'd be trapped and he'd catch up with me. Just couldn't do it. I started that game like three times and got to the same point every time. And you're just like, this is not fun anymore. And I don't want to play. Uh, I feel that way every time I get to an escort mission in the game. Mm, Yeah. That was where I got with Bioshock Infinite. Got to a point in there where I had to protect. I was on a train and protecting somebody. He's like, nope, there I go. I'm out. Don't don't ask me to chase someone and don't ask me to to protect someone because I will I will fucking drop that game. You know, the last time I mean, and this is this is a number of years ago because I just the time gets away from me because, you know, two podcasts a week. Uh, but Lego DC supervillains. I love the Lego the Lego games. They're just, they're fun. They're mindless. And those you kind of can pick up and put down because like, you know, I'll get back to it at some point or another and I'll do something goofy. And 
it was fun and i got the the season pass so i got all the dlc which included a mask of the phantasm mission which Mm -hmm. you could unlock and play as phantasm after that one i was like yes please and the fun thing with the lego dc games is the deep weird ass bench of characters oh of course like i'm playing as detective chimp it's like yes and because they don't have some of the weirdness that you know Marvel had for a long time with their rights, every friggin' character is available. It's not like like Lego Marvel Two. Lego Marvel One was fine, but Lego Marvel Two, we're suddenly like, yeah, no X Men because we don't have the movie rights to those characters, so we're not going to include them in any games. At least Lego Marvel One had everybody, but the Lego DC games. It started out with just Batman characters and it slowly expanded until Lego DC supervillains where it was every weird ass character you could imagine. You know, say what you will about DC, but at least they managed their shit and their intellectual property and they never got to a point where, oh, gee, we're almost bankrupt. Let's just start selling off assets. And they were so short sighted as to mangle their rights for decades. The worst thing DC has ever done is trading card rights. That was the one place where they they did something weird because they'd sold the tops, the license to do the Batman movie trading cards. But eventually when they started rolling out, you know, non-sports like comic book cards, like Marvel had the big hit of them in the 90s when DC started doing them. Oh, Oh, and of course they fucked up and they're like, oh, let's go buy some trading card companies. Uh yikes yep dc wound up having to do their first two sets of dc trading cards without bat characters (laughs) except for nightwing they couldn't use robin but they could use nightwing because he wasn't in the bat license at that point he was a titan so they had to like make veiled references to batman (laughs) dick grayson was part of a uh, legendary crime fighting duo but they couldn't say batman my god but you know that and the occasional like weird thing with this isn't so much a rights thing as warners people thinking you know kids are dumb it's like oh we can't use batman characters in justice league because we have the batman cartoon running or we can't have robin in anything because he's in teen titans because people would get confused what series they're watching it's like really Kids are way smarter than you think they are, Warner intellectual property cops. <laughs> so yeah, Lego DC supervillains. I've got a couple of games stacked up. Like I've gotten, and I have not started the two. They're Batman narrative games. The Telltale games. Yes, Telltale. Thank you. My brain was just, the name was jumping out of my head. I have, I got the disc that gives you access to both seasons. And I just, again, I know if I start them, that's all I'm going to do for however long it takes me to beat them. They were really big there for a hot minute before they basically went bankrupt. Yeah, they, they did not manage their business well either. And there is a comic miniseries called sins of the father that bridges the gap in between the two seasons that i have not read because i don't want to spoil season one (laughs) (laughs) it is like the only thing of the past like it's just it's sitting in a little short box of unread comics and before this what was the last game you played hardcore couldn't put it down 
obsessively. I don't know. I get real into some of the sports games sometimes, mm. like a season mode. The last, you know, MLB the show, I think, it's, oh, let me play a whole 162 ass game season with the Yankees. I got a little bit into the most recent Saints Row, uh, mm. but just just a taste. And then I was like, eh, this is not that great. The reviews kind of convinced me it wasn't all that great, even as I didn't hate it while I was playing it. I played a little cyberpunk before that, mm. but that was that was certainly a mess. Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting on Fallen Order, the Star Wars game, and the sequel on that is coming out. So it's like, okay, got to do this, and I'm gonna play Gotham Knights. I just need to break out the PS5 that we were given for Christmas and hook it up and start. Wait, on. wait, 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 wait! Time out! Time out! You have you were given the ps5 for christmas it is just about the end of march and you're still like oh yeah i'll hook that up whenever i feel like it i don't have the time i don't have the time and the new dragon age hasn't come out yet which is why what amber is waiting for and all of her rpgs are on the ps4 so it's not like she can port them the the campaign easily over so she's just going to keep playing on the one system when that new dragon age comes out she's all over that like nobody's business talk about a first world life like yeah i got got the new playstation 5 it's currently uh propping my door open i want to get gotham knights i just i need to take a vacation I need to have a vacation, and I need to dedicate that vacation to playing through Gotham Knights as Tim Drake. Yeah, because fuck all the other characters, I'm playing as Tim Drake. Like there was any doubt in anyone's mind that I was no, playing as Tim course, Drake. Of course not. That's the only thing you've ever wanted, to be able to play as Tim Drake. Yeah, I've played as Batman many times now. Oh, do you know how many times when I've assembled a team on those Lego games? It's like, okay... Put in Tim Drake, because you can play so many different adventures as Batman within the game. It's like, you know, Tim Drake is an unlockable character. So I was like, okay, heading up the team. If I could assemble a whole team, it would be like Tim Drake, Detective Chimp, Gorilla Grodd, <laughs> Tim Drake and a bunch of monkeys. And I'd be perfectly happy. Yeah, I can see that. But before we get into the the meat of the episode, just to you know, bring it down for a minute. And just a couple of hours ago, as we are recording, it was announced that Joe Giella passed away. If you're not familiar with the name, it's not too surprising. Giella was a uh, inker, occasional penciler, but mostly an inker of the Silver Age, 94 years old. And he penciled uh, penciled a couple of Batman stories, including one that I had completely forgotten he penciled. And we're going to have to cover this at some point. In 2001, he penciled a story with Ed Brubaker scripts. Wow. Uh, that of, is a career. Yeah. He, it was a part of a miniseries called Turning Points, a five-issue miniseries that traced the relationship of... Uh, Batman and Gordon leading up to the officer down crossover. Yeah. I remember reading part of that. And I think Chuck Dixon had a piece in that. Yeah, It was two Rookas, two Brubakers and a Dixon because it was setting up officer down, which was Rucka's sort of 
brainchild at the time. I think Rucka does the bookends. We but... should probably get around to covering that. Yeah. But yeah, just we want to call out Gogiella, a creator who inked a ton of Batman in the Silver Age. As I was saying to Will right before we started recording, ironically, did nearly every issue of Detective Comics from 327 to 400 and something. Missed a handful of issues, one of which is, of course, the issue we're covering tonight. Because that's just the way it worked. But our thoughts go out to Joe Giella's family and another legend. I mean, there aren't that many of those Silver Age creators left. I mean, Giella was, you know, Golden Age into the Silver Age. But still... But tonight, uh, the comic that we are covering that he did not do any of the art in is our first book. Because this week, uh, we are talking about the evolution of Barbara Gordon. From her first days as Batgirl to her transformation into Oracle. What we're not going to do is uh, is read Killing Joke again. No. We are covering a comic that is much better and responds to all of the negative parts of Killing Joke. Intentionally. But that's not until the end, because the first story of the night is the million-dollar debut of Batgirl. This is Detective Comics Volume 1, number 359. The writer is Gardner Fox, with pencils by Carmine Infantino, inks by Sid Green, no colorist is credited, letters by Gaspar Saladino, and edited by Julius Schwartz. Cover date is July of 1967. On her way to the Policeman's Masquerade Ball, Barbara Gordon, daughter of Police Commissioner James Gordon, runs afoul of the Killer Moth and his Mothman, making an attempt on Bruce Wayne. In her masquerade costume, Barbara makes her debut as the Domino Daredevil, Batgirl. Problematic creator watch. Yep. Julia Schwartz, noted sexual harasser. Not a good dude. And dead. Yes. I wish I could do a better... Batman 66 narrator voice because I wanted to do I wish I could have done that introduction in that voice but that is not an easy voice to do meanwhile at main uh, main Wanner (laughs) (laughs) Wayne Manor at stately Wayne Manor the home of Bruce Wayne and his young ward Dick Grayson that's better that's better than what I could have done but this is very much in the 66 oh Oh, the 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 fuckingest sixty sixest thing that there ever was, without intentionally trying to be sixty six. It is a great Batman sixty six. It's oh, it's yeah. I fucking love this. This yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. Up to the point where Killer Moth's henchmen are larva and pupa. That is right out of sixty six. Ah. Uh. And Dick makes a joke about Barbara's bad puns. I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's that's self-aware, right? That's self-aware, which is the greatest thing about 66. Everybody knows that this is crazy, right? <laughs> Everybody knows that this is lunacy, but the deadpan delivery of it all. There is no smirking. There is no meta. There is like, we know this is crazy, but we're going to give it to you straight. And that's what 66 is just so magical. And this issue does that perfectly. The best part is Dick makes that comment three pages later. Taking a killer moth will be a pleasure. I moth say. Ah, yes, that was terrible. Really, Grayson? You're calling out Barbara's puns? 
where she knocks over one of the villains and says, I guess this is the first time you've fallen for a girl. Comparatively, that's Shakespeare, Grayson. First, again, I I love this. And second, I actually have this in print. I uh, I did not read it, but I was uh, I was given this as a gift from my former father-in-law, and it's uh, it's off in the library somewhere. Wow, that's I've a got gift. Uh, yeah, I've got this and the first appearance of uh, Captain America in the Avengers. Yeah, that's uh, it's my retirement, Matt. That's all I got. Well, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think my two pristine gems, which are not that. I mean, I've got uh, Batman Adventures 12, so first Harley Quinn, and Five-Way Revenge. That, that one's not a, a huge ticket book, but it, it's a sentimental, and it's not a cheap book. Uh, I'm I'm thinking that uh, Joker 2 might see a, a spike in that market, maybe. Mm, quite possible. Back to the, the comic at hand. This is great. This is so much fun. This is so generally smart. There's a lot of stuff in the books tonight, mostly the first two, that the sexual politics of comics come up at issue. But while there is some stuff in the narration in here that is very 60s, Barbara is capable right out of the gate and she's not doing this like kathy kane and betty kane in the golden age were to try to you know win over batman no barbara's doing this because she's jim gordon's daughter and she saw something that needed to be taken care of and so she got involved she's a hero because she's a hero it has nothing to do with trying to win Batman's attention or affection. This is not a point that really speaks to this issue, but just kind of like the general Bat family as we start to see characters get added over time, certainly. And as I was reading this book and kind of reflecting on the uh, on that, I was struck by the idea uh, in the comparison to modern day professional wrestling. And the point being is that modern WWE will occasionally have athletic people from outside of wrestling who want to come in and who want to do like a match. Like they want to take some basic training and go do a match. Bad Bunny, for example, big current music star loves WWE and he came in and did a match. And it's very strange from a narrative perspective, taking a guy like Bad Bunny Another guy who's who's come in and done some matches, Pat McAfee, former NFL guy, now a talking head personality, ESPN, that sort of thing. But anyway, they bring these guys and have them do matches and narratively it shouldn't work, right? It shouldn't. You shouldn't be able to tell the story of that guy came in off the street and apparently he's a good wrestler. And the thing that made me think of it here is that we have Barbara who, yes, she has done karate and she's done, you know, she was a dancer and a, a ballerina or something. Gymnast. Um, gymnast. Yeah. The idea that she should be able to be as good as Batman. It's a little suspect, but 
but I'll certainly give Barbara a pass. But that's just one. It's one narrative obstacle because we have so much about Batman and his training over the years. He had to go all over the globe to do the things that he does. And certainly this, you know, detective, what is it? 385? 59. Uh, 359. It doesn't reflect that, right? It's 67. They are not all that invested in Batman's grueling training overseas. But it is a bit curious that we can have Barbara just kind of fall into this and, oh, she's good at it. In all fairness, it is Killer Moth. Very true. This is not the Joker we're dealing with here. This (laughs) is Killer Moth. No, granted, Killer Moth isn't the joke here that he is post-crisis. He's actually seemingly a threat, but he's also Killer Moth. And it's very hard to take Killer Moth seriously. Have you ever seen the unaired 10-minute pilot to the third season of 66 where you see Barbara in in a 66 TV killer moth? No. I'm pretty sure it's a special feature on the Blu-rays. I got to look that up. Yeah, it's short. And he's not dressed like this. Like he just has like antenna on his, he's wearing a suit. But yeah, because it, it was the final season. And Why? Getting, because you weren't getting Mister Freeze and his big armor in the last season. That's where you get Louis the Lilac and Olga, Queen of the Cossacks, because those costumes were easy and you could probably steal them out of the next studio over. That was the thing we weren't, as you said, we weren't dealing with training. Superheroes just sort of decided to be superheroes, and they were. And some of them got superpowers, and some of them didn't. Barbara, we see Barbara have to go through much more in post-crisis continuity to become Batgirl than she does here. But from the very beginning, we have a good setup for Oracle, right? She is a librarian. She has a PhD, Dr. Barbara Gordon. Loved that. And as I said, as I'm in the process of editing our episode with Josh Wheel right now, where it was, you know, you would comment how you found it skeevy that the hint that Bruce and Babs had a thing with that alternate. Here, it's very obvious. Babs is Bruce's peer, not Dick's. Mm -hmm. She's got a PhD. She's a grown woman. Dick is a senior in high school. She is Bruce's age or around there. And it's very much, she would have been his love interest, not Dick's at this point. But you can't go back to that well now because it's been too firmly established over the, the recent years that Barbara and Dick are of an age. And two, it, it just, it to me, and this is not really recognizing Barbara's agency, and for that I apologize, but it's such a violation of the friendship between Bruce and Jim, right? You know, I'm, I'm not going to be friends with a guy who, on my peer level and then say, oh, let me go date your daughter. Yeah, that, that violates the bro code in many, many ways. Weird and bad and just stop, stop referencing it, please. But back to the the story at hand. Yeah, I mean, she's well established as a smart, 
professional woman. And there are a couple of spots here where she gets the jump on Batman and Robin. And partially because they're cocky. They walk into Killer Moth's trap. And yes, you do see that Bruce at the end is like, well, I could have gotten out of it. And here's how I could have. But yeah, see, I had my laser. Yes. He happens to have a laser torch with him. You know the thing that I had to know more about from this issue, right? You know the thing that I had to... Ooh, let me go Google that and learn a thing. What? I'm curious. The base psalm book yes. that is delivered to the Gotham Library. And Barbara says, ooh, let me go take this out to Bruce's. He was He was been wanting this. Did you know anything about this? Did you look it up? I looked it up. I was not familiar with it going in. But yeah, now that it occurs to me, it's like, I, that did cross my mind. It's like, oh, Will's going to want to look this up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is referenced by name, and we have an editor's note about it. So I, I had to. The Basalm book, if you're not familiar with it, which I don't know, maybe, maybe you like American colonial literature. I don't know. Uh, I had never heard of it before. It is basically the first hymnal of the Pilgrims. It is the first American uh, slash English book printed in the New World. There are currently 11 surviving copies of the first edition. One of those is mentioned specifically in this comic. So uh, we got in this editor's note, a book in a copy in 1947 sold at $151,000. And it's like, oh, those, that's very specific. You go down to the, you, or you go to the Wikipedia article in this thing. It has each of the 11 copies and currently like where they are. And you scroll down and sure enough, you find at the uh, Benicki Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Yale University, bought for Yale in 1947 at a price of $151,000 by the Friends of the Library of Yale University. The copy uh, sold most recently in 2013 went for $14.2 million. That's so, a lot of cheddar. Yeah, and just a, a fascinating, like, weird thing to include in a comic. And just a weird thing to learn about. So there is a copy that's still, or there is a copy at the Library of Congress. One of the other copies has pages from that book in it. Like somebody was like, oh, some of my pages fell out. I'm going to take it from this other book. And they both survived. It's just, just a weird little thing to learn about. 14 million bucks. So Killer Moth would have had to blackmail what 140 millionaires to get that <laughs> that's his scheme rough up a millionaire and then say i'll come back unless you give me a hundred thousand dollars well i did love how the math really does check out the million dollar debut of batgirl uh we have 10 millionaires held up for a hundred thousand dollars each and as i'm reading along it's like oh that's the million dollars we're talking about here how interesting. Yeah. There are so many fun details. I love Barbara's transformation that she worked the Batgirl costume into her day-to-day -day outfit. 
which is hokey and would never work in reality. But for a comic in 67 is a lot of fun. And yeah, I mean, Bruce and Dick are kind of jerks. They're condescending. And the final panel is like really weird when you look at how Gordon is portrayed nowadays and has been for the past 40-ish years, where he ends with, boy, Barbara, wouldn't it be great if you were more like this Batgirl? Meanwhile, every comic since around Killing Joke has been, Gordon doesn't want her involved at all in that kind of world. And I'm sure you're going to give me the whole rundown here, but it was nice to see Barbara as Jim's daughter. Because yeah. again, when when she's the niece, like man, my head gets so confused. Crisis on Infinite Earths, man, and Frank Miller not paying attention when he did Batman Year One. That's it. It has been rewritten. One of the, again, one of the few things the New Fifty Two did, where it was just like, yeah, she's his daughter. We're we're not doing any more of that stuff that they've been bending over backwards to do for a long time. Just she's his daughter. Well, it's not perfect. It just makes me happy that Barbara is a character with agency and Barbara is a character who is competent because so much of the Golden Age stuff with Batwoman and Batgirl with the hyphen, not here where she's Batgirl one word, was them just doing this to win Batman's attention and Robin's attention and... Batman and Robin were always having to bail them out of situations they got themselves into. And here Babs holds her own. And that just made me happy because it just shows you that this was a character who from go knew what she was doing and was a great character. And there is this tension as, as much as you could have in the universe of 66, right? This tension between Batman and Robin and Batgirl. They're like, who are you? What are you doing here? Oh, you can't possibly be competent. Oh, shit, you are. Oh, fuck. I also do laugh, though, at the beginning when she's making the Batgirl costume. She's thinking that, you know, everyone just thinks I'm a brain and so plain. It's like, yeah, this is that rom-com trope of, you know, if you just take the glasses off and let the hair down. Because literally, that's what they do. She's wearing glasses, and she has her hair in Princess Leia buns. And she takes off her glasses and puts on the Batgirl cowl and lets her hair down. And she's, you know, knocking everybody out. Like the glasses and the hair up. Aww. <laughs> Matt has a thing for school moms. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> my My last point. We got this scene as he's, quote, on the way to the masquerade uh, ball. And she gets her fake costume a bit roughed up. We got a panel that looks like her face is melting. Do you think that's inherent to the original or was that a not a great touch up job? Because obviously this is another thing uh, that we're reading digitally that has been touched up and recolored because... Yeah, this is the one that DC is obviously going to do. I think the touch-up did not help the poor coloring of that era, the way the colors bleed and such. Interestingly, if you look at this on Infinite, at least, the 
backup, the elongated black man, and white. Yeah, because that was when DC did the showcase presents the black and white phone book reprints. They did one of all the elongated man backups from Detective. So they didn't go back to the original. They just took and digitized the decolored version they did for that. Fascinating. I thought yeah. there might be a story as to why it was not colored. That is the story. At least that's what I assume because it's the only thing that makes sense to me because it was printed in color. DC just making the weirdest decisions with their digital archives. But I think that we are good at this point. Oh, uh, that means it's time to put Detective Comics number 359, the million-dollar debut of Batgirl on the big board! We are at 237 stories on the big board. Uh, number one is Batman Year One, the post-crisis origin of Batman. Down at number 50 is For the Man Who Has Everything, the Superman annual where Bruce Wayne tells Jason Todd to think clean thoughts, chum. Ah, coming at a sexy 69, it's Detective Comics 622 to 624, Dark Genesis. Down at 100 is 25 big ones, Harley Quinn number 25, where Harley beats the living hell out of the Joker. Down at 150... We got My Baby, Blades, Legends of the Dark Knight, 32 to 34. At 200 is Batmite's New York Adventure, where Batmite comes into the real world for a whole six pages. And all the way down at the bottom, it is still White Knight. Still a big old pile of doo-doo. we thinking do we have an opening bid um top 100 yes and that feels low it does because this is so much fun it does a thing where no it's not your, your dark knight your denny o'neill neil adams you know return to the old but it's not completely goofy 50s batman either it's not batman fighting weird aliens and getting turned into the zebra batman this is a solid story that introduces one of the most important characters in the bat mythos and does a good job of it yeah uh i mean not to give away the rest of the episode i i think this is the ceiling for tonight i enjoy one of the others quite a bit but i can see where you might be going with that hmm interesting okay all right well we'll see it would be right i think i feel like in a similar neighborhood anyway mm. i could see this in somewhere in the mid 40s to into the somewhere between eternal part one and Resurrection Night down at 64. Yeah, we got some very similar sort of all ages books right uh, between there. Mystery Case Book of 55, Batman, Robin, and Howard at 57. I, uh, I think this is definitely the right territory. This is every bit as enjoyable as Mystery Case Book, just without that 
Encyclopedia Brown flair to it. Yeah. I mean, below that is Cry for Blood, which is a Huntress origin. This is more compact. This gives you everything you need to know about Barbara in one 16-page story. Uh, It's it's also always hard to do Silver Age. The thing is also you get a lot of Babs' internal life here, which you don't get a lot of in a lot of Silver Age DCs. She really is a fully formed character. Even if she's not fully the Barbara we know, she's a fully formed character at this point. I want to say right below Batman and Robin and Howard and above Venom. I like that. I was looking at Venom and trying to decide if I would put it above or below, but it was felt like the right area. So yeah, I think the new 58 is the way to go. Because this just this doesn't have that emotional core of Batman and Robin and Howard. It's a good read. It's a hilarious read. It's a good time. It just doesn't strike that same emotional heartbeat there. Yes, but it does not have the weirdness that Venom does in places. And it doesn't, maybe not overstay its welcome, but have a soft, some softness in the middle that Venom does. Yeah. So yeah, 58 it is. Our next story is the last Batgirl story. This is Batgirl special number one. The writer is Barbara Randall. Pencils are by Barry Kitson. Inks by Bruce D. Patterson. Colors by Carl Gafford. Letters by John Costanza. And edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover date is July of 1988. Batgirl is drawn into one last case involving Cormorant, the assassin who nearly killed her four years prior, and the vigilante Slash, an avenger of women whose victims escaped the system. This one might not have been the best choice. This is, A, one of those examples of a story where there is no actual Batman in it. And I probably should have remembered that or realized that a comic that I had such vague recollections of, and you know how my memory works, is probably not a good sign. Yeah. um, So let me tell you my experience reading this. So we're set up with this mysterious Lady Deadpool slash and we're also given Barbara's friend, uh, Marcy, right? I read this whole fucking thing thinking, oh, uh, okay, I guess Marcy is Slash. Uh, all right. Okay, cool. Let's let's see how this story resolves. Dear listeners, I am here to tell you, not only is Marcy not Slash, we never find out anything else about Slash because this is the one and only appearance of Slash. And Slash, as a concept, is a good concept. This is someone who's going out and killing rapists and men who abuse women who've escaped the system. That is a character who would work so well in a modern context. Hey, promising young woman, good-ass film and a good time. God, such a great movie. Until we get to the third act and it kind of falls apart. But... Before that, good shit. Again, I picked this because it is the first sort of solo Batgirl comic. I mean, she'd had backups and things, but this was Barbara. And since I was viewing this as taking her from Batgirl to Oracle, this comes out the same month as Killing Joke. This is 
technically at the time it was the last Batgirl story. So I thought it was appropriate to get from first appearance to this, to the next story to build that arc. But I didn't remember anything more about it than that because I don't think I read it when it came out. I didn't because I wasn't quite reading comics yet, but I read it fairly early on and it did not stick with me. And I too was like, well, Marcy's obviously slash. Obviously, right? She keeps trying to talk Barbara out of doing this as Marcy because she doesn't want to have to hurt her. And then when she's in the slash costume, she's trying to get Barbara to join her one way or the other. She's trying to get that makes perfect sense. And then nope she keeps popping up mysteriously this is a weird comic do you think this was some kind of pitch for a mini something where we would have found out that marcy was flash it's so strange and the story is just so almost self-evident that it's bizarre how none of this stuff got resolved and Marcy's husband, who died in a mysterious car accident. She has a kid who we never see. The Cormorant stuff is a follow-up to one of the old Batgirl stories. Like, the whole thing with Cormorant shooting her and this general scar, that was from a series of Batgirl backups. So this was rooted in that continuity. There's so much that seems to be going on here. This is Marcy's only appearance, too, by the way. Never appeared before, never appeared after. Lifelong friend, though. Yeah, who was there when they came up with the idea of Batgirl. Like, they had a little Batgirl doll that they shared. I just assumed that Marcy truly had been there the whole time, and yet you're telling me she wasn't? Nope. Bizarre. <laughs> this yeah. thing. This thing is weird, Matt. It is. And the idea of the superhero dealing with the PTSD of being a superhero, that's something that we see a lot of now and wasn't something that a lot of people were doing in 1989. But I'm not sure how I feel about how the whole thing was handled in this story. I wonder, Matt, if you could have some kind of treatment center for superheroes with with ptsd and then what if you set that up and then you had like a story about it but then the whole thing just became like some dumbass murder mystery that everybody hated well you do know that in my pantheon of dc characters <laughs> it goes number one is is bruce tim Wayne, drake batman oh it's batman number two tim drake and number three is Wally West. <laughs> so, <laughs> Heroes in Crisis. <laughs> but apparently this week's issue of The Flash is going to try to remedy some of the mess that was Heroes in Crisis. Oh, good luck. And uh, to all you Wonder Woman fans out there, let me just say I'm sorry. I'm sorry and good luck. I don't know why DC is really keeping Tom King around. I just... He's going to be writing three books. Three ongoings? Wonder Woman, Penguin, and Brave and the Bold. Brave and the Bold is an anthology, so that's probably just for that arc. But he is doing the Penguin ongoing, and he is doing Wonder Woman. Why? You got me. 
at least you can't imagine the penguin ongoing lasting for what two volumes yeah probably i i think that that one i believe it's an ongoing maybe i'm misremembering it It has been pitched as a mini series but i'm pretty sure it was pitched as an ongoing that i don't think anyone is going to really believe is going to be an ongoing it's it's stefano godino on art which i'm excited to see that because hey nothing beats more formalism but but back to this weird ass comic Babs is all over the place in this story. She is so obsessed with Cormorant, but it's been four years and she never did anything to try to hunt this killer down. And she even says that, but then they just never address as to why. She's afraid of him because she had never been that wounded in a fight before okay but it just it's so all over the place and the last action scene stretches on for forever it I, is I, I, far too long i like the twist at the end right the the thing that dooms cormorant is his wife presumably just peacefully locking him out of the house mm-hmm. and then shooting him not even shoot him, giving the gun to Slash to shoot. Ah, ah that's right. Yeah, that uh, She remains passive. And again, you've got this page earlier on where she gives Slash a file on Cormorant. You assume you never see who it is, but you assume it's her, which indicated she had some connection to Slash before this, but it's never explained. So many loose ends in this story and it's funny you talked about how the wrestling thing and barbara showing hyper competence without any explanation that didn't bother me so much there it bothers me that slash is that good that she keeps getting one over on barbara and we get no explanation no real feel as to how she is able to beat someone who at this point has been working with Batman and Robin for years. Oh, well, see, though, you can just you could just fill in the blank, right? Slash could be former Mossad. Like, she could be any kind of special agent forces in the world, right? Because we literally... League of Assassins. Perfect. Slash is actually Talia. There you go. Or Lady Shiva. There you go. Right? No, it, it could be anybody. Never takes off the mask. We never learned anything other than her general kind of beef. She kills some guys in some really just kind of badass ways. I'm stabbing you. You're bleeding out. I'm going to leave you on the street. This is where you're going to die. This is what you deserve. Like, that's a really good scene. Probably the highlight of this whole weird-ass book. But that's that's all the character development we get for Slash. Cormorant is contracted to take her out after she kills the son of the sleazy general who Cormorant was working for. But Cormorant never actually goes hunting for her. She comes to kill him because the wife gives her his information. 
it felt like there was a bunch of stuff that happened in here that you could have removed and you could have gotten more into Barbara's arc because Barbara's just all over the place. And okay, Barbara decides she needs to go up and confront Cormoran. So what does she do? She takes the bus in costume. And then Marcy comes and picks her up. That was when I was sure Marcy was slashed. Because how did she know where Barbara was going? But again, there's also Oracle hints here. Because you got Bob's doing a lot of computer work in this story. A lot of research saying that she had computer networks networked into the library. While it sets up a lot of Oracle it's not directly connected because this is 88 and or Barbara doesn't make her first appearance as Oracle until Suicide Squad two years later with none of the creative team in common. So I think it was just the Oracle stuff was taking that and moving it forward. Barbara is so obsessed and driven that she makes really foolish mistakes throughout a lot of this story. The other person I thought slash might wind up being at least when she first appeared was cormorant's wife i thought she it was like okay she's learned all of the the stuff from him she can't quite bring herself to kill her abuser but she's taking it out on others and then it's like oh wait no no because she's feeding information an interesting sort of inverse from one of the other stories we're going to see tonight yeah and it feels like there's was more to this and i will say the wiki for this this is in a weird place in continuity because so much of it is addressing stuff that is pre-crisis continuity despite it taking place post-crisis and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense Again, I I feel like this was just some, this was somebody's pitch for a mini or a series and DC just thought they could put it out and make a little bit of money off it. We know what's going to happen in Killing Joke, so let's do one last Batgirl story this way. The other thing that made me sure that Marcy was Slash is my assumption, again, from reading at the beginning, is that, all right, Slash killed... The first victim we see, the one who turns up dead in the library, Scarano, and left the hat that was Cormorant's trademark to get Babs onto the case, to lure her into it, to try to recruit her to her cause. But again, never followed up, and you're never sure, was it Slash? Was it Cormorant? Was Slash hiding out, as we see her do in a couple of times, like, you know, bundled up in a trench coat and hat. Was she wearing that hat and having to fall off when she was killing Scarano? There's a lot of stuff that just isn't answered. And why is Scarano in the library? And why does Slash kill him in the library? If not but to put it basically right there in Barbara's lap. It feels like there was much more to this story and it just never was published and it just was cut down to this and yeah yeah the fact you never see slash unmasked is the weirdest thing she's bundled into an ambulance in full costume at the end 
expertly bandaged. Yeah. Babs didn't take off the mask. Eh, I'd rather not know. It is a weird freaking choice. You got anything else? I do not think I do. All right. Uh, I don't have anything else, so that means it's time to put Bad Girls special number one on the big board! Okay. So... Not offensively bad. Not terrible. Just weird and not great and not something you ever need to reread. No. Um, All right. Well, here's... Here's a comic from the same period that touches on at least some of the same ground. 174, Her Sister's Keeper, the first Catwoman miniseries, the one with Maggie and the pimp, and a solid three issues and then a fourth issue that also feels like it was more stuff and then got squished down into one issue. Hmm... That one has more resonance moving forward as it gives us more Holly. It introduces Maggie. It's very dark, but a lot of it feels more rooted. While this, while dealing with a serious topic, seems to be using it as just kind of, hey, here's a cool concept for a a vigilante. Since you never learn anything about Slash, you never get any emotional grounding in why Slash is doing it other than, well, let's be honest, who wouldn't want to go out and make sure a bunch of rapists never got to hurt anyone again? Death Wish without the racism? Oh, yeah, totally. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's it's very shallow. Very shallow. Okay, so shallow puts it a little below that. Because I think Shallow is your 181 down. Your Batman Noel, your Leaves of Grass, your Shaman, your great Joker Clayface feud, where there's no dark connection at 193, that Swamp Thing, Batman, Brave and the Bold. I would say this goes above all of that. But below... Probably below Luther, you're driving me sane at 179. So I'm I'm actually looking like below 179, above 184, leaves of grass. All right. How does 181 sound? Below the three ghosts of Batman, your alpha male plus Bane Batman, but above Noel, which is Noel. Was pretty but nothing else yeah that works uh, and just as a and we've slipped it on both of these uh the first one of these the first appearance of barbara gordon is drawn by carmen infantino legendary artist and this is drawn by barry kitson who will go on to do a healthy run on both shadow of the bat and the azrael ongoing so he is a artist with a good amount of Batman in his career. And I will say this, you got to give it to DC in 1988 for at least letting a woman write this book. You know, we have, we have to pick it apart. It's not great, but at least they have a woman writing a female character, which is nice. 
Are we said fun. a nice thing about it. Yes. It's good looking. And I like that in the end, Babs does have that moment where she's like, no, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. And she beats the living hell out of Cormoran. And I think Slash is a great concept. I just don't think they gave the concept enough. I'm going to say she's ex Massad. I can go for that. I, I'll, I'll go with that. Our We've final... added to the canon. Yes. When I when I finally get to write Batman, I will bring Slash back. Yes. With a proper sensitivity reader helping me present the character in a proper light. Yes. Our final story of the night is Oracle Year One, Born of Hope. This is Batman Chronicles number five. The writers are John Ostrander and Kim Yale. Pencils by Brian Stelfries. Inks by Carl Story. Colors by Mark Chiarello. Letters by John Costanza. And edited by Darren Vincenzo and Jordan B. Gorfinkel. The cover date is June of 1996. In the wake of the events of The Killing Joke, Barbara Gordon must face her trauma and come out as something new. Oracle. There are two other stories in here that we'll discuss a little bit at the end, but we're obviously here to focus on this story as it is the reason for the season when it comes to us including it in this episode. We have got at least one very, very good page in this first story. I like this story a lot. Falls apart at the end, Matthew. There are issues with it in the end. There are some issues within the story, but I like this story a lot. You've bullied me into putting blades in the 150s. Hey, hey, it didn't start out at the 150s, man. It didn't start out down there. You've put a bunch of stories ahead of it. That is neither here nor there. Look, my only point here, Oracle can do a lot of stuff. A lot of cool stuff. She should not be able to hypnotize people over the phone. Here's the thing. I don't think she did. I think it's a bluff. Okay. I think she assumed that no one has been able to pull interface who can, who's a technopath and lock them in the computer. And then I think she just said, and I don't think she said she'd hypnotize her over the phone. I think she was saying she left the post hypnotic suggestion in her from when she was jacked into the computer. That's splitting a very fine hair, Matt. It's iBorg. That's what she did. <laughs> Literally using the iBorg logic trap. I think that was a bluff. I think she was counting on Interface being so shocked by her having her power taken away like that, that being told, I can do it to you again whenever I want, would get her to turn herself in. All you got to do is log off, Matt. When your whole life is that, how easy is it to log off? Uh, that's when you're true. a technopath, when you are in contact with machines, it's not that easy. Look, as I tell my students, if I ever lose a job because of social media, I'm going to get rid of Facebook and Twitter. Even though I spend an unhealthy portion of my day checking Facebook and Twitter as soon as they cause real harm rather than just killing time. I'm off. That's all I'm saying. You don't define your entire identity and your make your entire 
We are not even talking about Barbara. <laughs> we are talking about a one-off villain here. There are more important <laughs> aspects of this story, and all of which are... Wait, what am I thinking? Interface is not... She's not a one-off villain. She is a character from... Ostrander and Yell's Manhunter that they brought her back, which is which it's, makes we we get some weird details for this to be one off. Like the the idea that she's a technopath and she abuses children. Yeah, it's a lot going on, right? And that's the stuff from the Manhunter appearances. The stuff that doesn't affect this story is the stuff the 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 abusing kids. That's from the Manhunter stuff. I'm willing to argue those points with you. Everything mm-hmm. up until Interface shows up is phenomenal. Remember, this is 1996. This is three years before Gail Simone coins women in refrigerators. This is taking Killing Joke and taking it out to the woodshed. Oh, does it ever. This is Yale and Ostrander calling out the fact that that story removes Barbara's agency and makes her nothing more than a pawn between Batman and Joker. She says it. She calls out the end. It also deals with trauma, but does it in a more holistic manner. You see her going through physical therapy, through psychological therapy. The nine-panel grid of her having to transfer herself from the wheelchair into a car is an incredibly affecting page. It uses that step-by-step process to establish something that those of us who are able just do without thinking and shows all the steps that someone has to go through who does not have that luxury. It's not not even 20 pages. It takes place over the course of nearly a year. And you, so it's not like she suddenly wakes up one morning like, hey, I'm Oracle. And once we get 96, internet is not in its infancy, but in its wide use still becoming a thing. So this is dealing with a lot of that. And... Some of it is very cute. Yes. I also love that we get Richard Dragon. The the one thing that bugged me, aside from some of the bits with Interface, is that, you know, she specifically thinks that she wants to go and learn self-defense and that, and she wants to not involve Bruce or her father. And Bruce slips her Richard Dragon's information using the internet handle Matches. Love that. Matches Malone reference. But it was very specific that she didn't want Bruce involved. And him sort of sneaking in there. I'm not sure how I feel about that. That That is kind of a weird marginalization of, ba- of, uh, me, of Barbara in that, oh, Batman knows computers too. You know, Batman's great at computers. I like the training with Richard Dragon. I like that Yale and Ostrander handle that in a way that follows up Dragon's appearances in the question. That he is sort of traveling and helping train people. 
I have all sorts of headcanon as to why he's appearing to Barbara as an unhoused person, because you have not read the question yet. And I don't know how many of you out there have read the question, but when Vic Sage comes to be trained by Richard Dragon, Dragon is in a wheelchair. And only when you get to, I believe the end of the series, when Vic comes back, does it Dragon just stands up and Vic can't figure out why he was faking. And he says to him, if I had been able to fight you in the way you thought I could, you wouldn't have listened because all you saw was rage and you would have seen a target. But because you could look at me as unthreatening, you listened. So I wonder why, if Dragon plays these sort of head games with people to find their weak points, why it was that he was doing the whole hobo act with Barbara. I've not come up with an answer to that in my own head. But part of me is like, is it because he's a person, he's theoretically at his lowest and so is Barbara. So that way she would see him as someone who is kindred in certain respects. But I haven't gotten a proper answer for that in my own head. It's it's interesting that you mentioned the question because I had the passing notion that as Interface pushes basically Barbara into traffic, some mysterious stranger helps her back into the chair. The stranger's face is never shown, and it looks suspiciously like the question. This also establishes uh, the the stream of fighting stick style that Barbara will use moving forward in perpetuity and that Dick uses as well. What was the one page that spoke to you? Oh, the taking the piss out of the killing joke. Obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just want to I might have said this when we were talking about killing joke, but I'm going to say it again now. If I did, or I'm going to say it for the first time if I didn't then. Anytime anyone says Killing Joke gave us Oracle and that in itself makes it worth it, you're wrong. Sit there in your wrongness and be wrong. I rarely say anyone is wrong because people have opinions unless it's a factual thing. I will rarely say you're wrong. Killing Joke did nothing with Barbara. It was Yale and Ostrander in Suicide Squad and in this story and years of other development that gave us Oracle. All Killing Joke did was fridge an important character. Killing Joke did nothing for Barbara Gordon. It removed her agency and made her a prop, which is exactly what the beginning of this story calls out. And in just a very, very pointed way, right? You you can't get any more direct than that without running like literally a paragraph from a review of The Killing Joke, right? This is these guys saying, oh, that was fucking shitty. We did mm-hmm. not care for that. And Alan Moore, what do you think about this? This should have been the last word on The Killing Joke. Yeah. Until a whole bunch of assholes grew up reading it and loving it. This and Birds of Prey 16 or something, where Babs finally confronts the Joker 
and basically says, you don't have any power over me anymore. Once you've seen Barbara find her ground again, and once she has finally had that moment where she moves beyond the Joker, we should not ever have to deal with killing joke again. No, but we got assholes who love to make references to it. It wasn't that long ago since we had, you know, that, that, uh, that alternate cover that everybody fucking hated uh-huh. that, that has, that was into the last, what, five or six years, right? A uh, little longer than that. That was end of the new 52. So 2015 ish. 2015. Yep. And they, they went back to it. God, uh, just recently, apparently Harley Quinn 21. It bears far more weight than it should, but neither here nor there. We've said our piece on killing joke multiple times. And it's status on the board reflects what we think of it. Precisely. It is a technically proficient comic. That has fundamental problems. We'll discuss more of this when it comes to the ranking about where, because I agree, the ending is weird and has some some problems. But giving Barbara a cyber nemesis as her first Oracle case makes a lot of sense. Now, what did you think? Because I know when Detective 726, the last stealth freeze we did, didn't work for you. How did the art feel on this one? It's a little bit all over the place, at least in terms of uh, realism. Like that that nine panel page that you pointed out, almost photorealism, right? And yet, when you get interface, she looks basically like Cruella, Cruella Deville. She like it really a, does. It's like a cartoon villain. I think this was pretty good. I like the colors. I love the use of colors in Barbara's dream sequence when she yes. becomes Oracle. I love the the origin of the Oracle mask. I think that's really cool. I think I made it clear before, but Yale and Ostrander are the ones who make her Oracle in Suicide Squad six years before that. This is retcon. This is the best definition of retcon. This is a story that was not told that they are now filling in a blank. On top of this, there are two other stories in this issue. We've got a Jim Gordon story and basically an Alfred story. Neither of them are particularly substantial. The Gordon story is a problematic creator watch on that. Uh, Howard Chaikin co-wrote it. Islamophobia and transphobia are issues that Chaikin has had in recent years. That's nothing particularly special. A silly little action thing with an interesting twist at the end and an incredibly high body count. Oh, yeah. It's it's nice looking uh, because Chaikin co-writes it with Tommy Lee Edwards, who pencils it with John Polion inks. So it's, it's real nice. The last story is a lot of fun. It's an Alan Grant, Scott McDaniel, Alfred as a young man working for the Waynes and sort of about how he and Bruce bond. And you see a young Bruce, even before the Waynes' death, defending kids from bullies. You see that Bruce was always a good kid. And you see the the fact that, that the Waynes made the right choice in leaving 
Bruce with Alfred. But as I realized after that, the Batmite story from last episode, six to eight pages are not enough to generally <laughs> make their own spot on the big board. No, no. Decoys is, it's just, uh, just however many pages, just action, 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 yeah. action, action. With again, that just novel twist. I won't say yes. it's particularly inspired. It's novel. It's interesting. The Alfred story, you know, it had a nice heart to it, you know, written by Alan Grant. I just don't like this constant obsession with trying to get the Waynes to the movies. Oh, God. I, if they had not had that last line. Exactly. Exactly. Up to that point, the final thing I wrote in my notes was ends with a wink between Alfred and Bruce. I prefer to ignore the movie section bit. Like, it, it's, I, I don't know this obsession, right? It's, yes, we know the Waynes are going to die. We know that that's their their tragic murder inspires Bruce to become, you know, a vigilante and to, to engage in his war on crime. We don't have to be hit over the head with that, right? This story would, would have been so much better if it just ends at, you know, Alfred deciding, yeah, I'll stay here. I'll, you know, help with this kid. He seems like a good dude. Also, I will say, I don't think that's how molasses works. But aside from the ending, perfectly solid story. I think that about does it. Uh, that means it's time for Batman Chronicles number five on the big board. I think you might have won me. You've won me to the point that this does not. This is not the top of the night. I'm not sure where I was even ever thought it was going to be the top of the night. I looking at the book holistically, I think it's somewhere in the low lowish triple digits. I think we've both come off our positions. I I have I have hardened your heart and you have softened mine. For as much as the other two stories aren't spectacular. And for much as the first story, to me, again, kind of falls apart at the end, it does just really take the piss out of the killing joke. Just just well, takes it out back and just just beats the shit out of it. Killing joke and is that, at 102. This goes above that. That certainly does. I mean, I could go 60s, 70s with this. I, you know, I'm willing to compromise. All right. And you've talked, you've talked me up. Last week's loyalties, which was another Ostrander, it is another story where Barbara is featured, is at 62. I don't think it can beat that because, again, we have to look at it holistically. And Decoys, while fine, is not up there high enough. It, it drags the average down a bit. It does. It does. This this would have been better as just the one story expanded, which I'm sure that's not you know, that's not what Chronicles was doing at the time. Yeah, Chronicles was always three or four shorts. But OK, so as we have the the shakenness of that middle story, 71 is Thrill Killer, more shaken. I'm working like to like here. Yeah. Thrill Killer. Another thing that's uh, 
the whole is less than the sum of its parts. Yes. Because again, pulled down by an ill wind from one chapter. All right, one more. Number 70, Dark Genesis, is another Ostrander. A lot of Ostrander in this area. Remind me, uh, refresh me, Dark Genesis. The Batman comic, the serial killer inspired by the supernatural Batman comic, comic within a comic. Mm. This probably goes above that. For the substance it has, I think it has to go higher. Like, Thrill, Thrill Killer is just fun to look at and just a fun Elseworld. A lot of this stuff in this section is as clearly is, is forgettable for me. So I'd say somewhere in the 60s. All right. I'm going to I'm going to call one here. Uh, 67. Below the first Joker story above the return of Scarface. Sounds good. All right. 67 it is. And that is it for tonight. Next week, we'll decide to bite the bullet. And so we're finally covering Heart of Hush and two Dude. other stories <laughs> and two other stories of Batman's foe you'd think was a mummy, but isn't. Uh, we'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, June, Conduit of Outdated Joke Names, Jen Kemen, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, <laughs> Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Go Utes, Sam Hopper, John Wickham. Robert Secundus, Bobby Tubuck, Tim Rooney, Giorgio Sregioli, David Wheel, and Alexander Wheel for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on ComicsXF.com, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon, where you can get shoutouts, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at MattLess1013. And I'm at Will Nevin. I'm also out of here. Good night, Huntsville. And be sure to visit ComicsXF at ComicsXF.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books, for my other show, WMQ&A, where my longtime best friend Dan Grote and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.